Good afternoon and welcome to the Jason Rancho on AM 770 KTTH streaming on the KTTH smartphone app. A Democratic leader in the past has said we need to defund and dismantle. Now she's thanking the police because, hey, they actually helped in a crime that she was the victim of. And that is what's trending. What's trending? Back the blue. I've often said on this show that there have been a lot of folks who are radical leftists who refuse to see the reality of life in the cities that their policies are ruining. That you and I see the data. We see the record high homicide numbers. We see the record high juvenile crimes. We see the record high motor vehicle thefts. And we can say very clearly that it's a result of certain policies. And now... From city to city, state to state, those policies will change just a little bit. But for the most part, they are similar. They're almost the same. And until you as an individual experience some kind of crime or know someone who experiences some kind of crime, I I think there are some people who just their minds will not be changed. Their minds will not convince themselves to vote a different way until that happens. And we've seen that happen over and over and over again here in Seattle. And it just happened in a significant way and is really the epitome of what it is I'm talking about. It happened in Minneapolis, where a Democratic leader, she's the second vice chairwoman for the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party. Her name is Shimvamfi Santhadon, Santhanadon. I'm probably pronouncing her name incorrectly. My apologies. But she not only thanked the Minneapolis PD, but she told prosecutors, hey, there are youths who are, quote unquote, running wild. And you need to do something. And the reason why she is saying this is because she was violently carjacked. She was violently carjacked by what she says are four very young men all carrying guns. She said they assaulted her in front of her kids. This was right in the middle of the day, broad daylight, right outside of her home. And in this post that she put on Facebook, she included a photo of her head injuries. But it wasn't just that because you've got some blood dripping down her her forehead. She said she has a broken leg, deep lacerations on her head, bruising and cuts around her body. She said, quote, these men knew what they were doing. I have no doubt they have done this before, yet they are still on our streets killing mothers, giving babies psychological trauma that a lifetime of therapy cannot erase with no hesitation and no remorse. I'm now part of the statistics. I wasn't silent when I fought these men to save my life and my babies, and I won't be silent now. We need to get illegal guns off of our streets, catch these young people who are running wild, creating chaos around our cities, and hold them in custody and prosecute them. Period. Now, the reason why this is news is because she previously had a different position. She previously wanted to dismantle and defund the police department. In fact, after the George Floyd death, she wrote a bunch of Facebook posts. And I don't want to dunk on her for this injury that she suffered and this experience that traumatized her. But I do think that it's important to point out that even the folks who helped implement the criminal justice reforms, are regretting them. They might not say it in, uh, directly, right? They might not say it directly, but they're saying it indirectly. And it's no different than what we've been seeing with New York. 
We've been seeing with Eric Adams, who've been who's been coming out in stronger terms, talking about the immigration crisis. Now, sure, he's blaming Republicans for it because he's too much of a coward to go after the Democrats, but he has at least called out the Biden administration a little bit for not doing enough. But when you create an open border policy, when you call yourself a sanctuary city, well, guess what? You're going to suffer consequences. And now that they're suffering consequences, they are speaking up. So going back to a previous post that she wrote post George Floyd, I believe it was all actually in June of 20. Yeah, it was June 2020. She wrote, we are going to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. Say it with me. Dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. As allies, we can do we can do right now. Or what can we do right now? Listen and learn from our black siblings and then amplify this message right now in this moment. MPD has systematically failed the black community. They have failed all of us. It's time to build a new infrastructure that works for all communities. If you're still disagreeing with that basic fact, I'm not sure what to say to you. And she went on, of course. I'm proud of the radical leadership and organizing. We need to support and all the city council members and electeds who are working alongside the radical leadership. They're looking to change, she said at the time, they're looking to change the way that the Minneapolis Police Department runs because they believe, not just this individual, but others in the radical left, believe that there is systematic racism, blah, 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 blah. She fought to get the Minneapolis Police Department out of schools. She was one of many who pushed to get school resource officer programs dismantled, and in a lot of places they were. Again, I write about this extensively in my book, What's Killing America, which was published by Center Street Books. They're the ones who paid me for it. It wasn't KTTH. And I hope you'll pre-order the book because not only do I want you to read it, but if you're so willing, I would love it if you would buy an extra copy for a liberal friend who does not understand what's going on, who lives in an echo chamber. This is a book that's as much for the, the radical left than it is for us to understand why the radical left believes what they believe. I don't want to see people who previously held these positions to be victims of crimes. I don't. But I'm certainly going to report when they are. And I'm going to highlight the fact that their policies cause this. I don't want them to get hurt. I don't want them to get carjacked, robbed, stabbed, beat up, whatever. I don't want that to happen. But I want them to realize what their policies, what their activism have has done to their communities. Whether we're talking about Minneapolis or Seattle or Portland or D.C., Atlanta, Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, the list goes on and on. And there are people to this day who are pretending that nothing is the matter. Nothing is wrong. And if anything's going to be wrong, they're going to say, well, it's a red state problem. Well, Minneapolis isn't a state. Minneapolis is a city. And we have a problem with Democrat-run cities when they're run by the radical left. Not all Democrats are radical left. But a growing number of them are. And they're loud and they're organized. And they're winning battles. We just got to make sure that they don't win the war, the war for this country, for our freedoms, for our safety. How many more people have to be like she just was the victim of a a carjacked victim? 
in front of her kids in broad daylight by a group of juveniles. We talked about this earlier on in the show. You know, we're, we're here in Seattle. We have at least 16 elderly Asians who have been victimized by a group of three to seven black teenagers or young adults. They say teens. I, I, it could be anywhere up to, I'm guessing, early 20s. These are targeted attacks. Where's the mayor? Where's the, the half Asian, half black mayor who points that out pretty frequently? As a means to say, hey, I represent the community. Well, you're not talking to the community about something that's impacting the community that you are connected to. Where are you? Silence. Even after another violent attack against an elderly couple in South Seattle. We have nothing coming from him. We have one council member who actively speaks up, Sarah Nelson, who's going to be on the show in a moment. But that's about it. It's just maddening, the lack of leadership on this. But people shouldn't have to experience a crime to get them to change their minds. We know what's happening. We know why it's happening. We know how to prevent it. A lot of these crimes are are preventable, avoidable. If only we just decided, hey, Democrats, why don't we get together and actually admit fault and then do something to fix things? Let's find out what else is trending. What's trending? The homelessness crisis. (laughs) There's a story over at Cairo 7 TV that I find Mildly amusing. I I suppose I can't find it full-on belly laugh amusing because it's depressing. But there at one point was a plan in the city of Seattle to use a lot for homeless RVs. It was a horrible program that was never, ever, ever in a million years going to be effective. We've tried it before. It's incredibly expensive. Rules aren't followed. And it does nothing to get people on the right path who are homeless. But the amusing part is that lot has now been turned into one part of, oh my God, one part of the plan from Mayor Bruce Harrell to, you know, activate or revitalize the downtown area. He's usually all talk, but when it comes to frivolous things, he'll at least follow through. He's turning it into pickleball courts. And, of course, no one's going to go into the area for pickleball courts, uh, for the pickleball courts anyway. I know exactly where they're talking about. They're talking about the Interbay neighborhood, which is where I – it was very close to where I recorded the audiobook for What's Killing America, which comes out in two weeks, which I hope you'll pre-order over at Amazon. It's available on uh, in your Google store if you're looking for the audio version of it. It's published uh, and paid for by Center Street. But if you want the regular hard copy, just go to Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, and wherever it is, finer books are sold. But they're putting up a pickleball field, a court. And the mayor over the last, I think it might have been... Might have been yesterday during the show. I think I saw the press release come in at like 5.30 or so. Announcing that he's got a pickleball tournament that's going to happen uh, next weekend. And this weekend is going to be some other tournament. Again, as part of revitalizing Seattle. And he thinks that having a pickleball tournament or any kind of tournament one time is somehow going to revitalize any neighborhood. You, it, Unless you're putting it in a neighborhood that's already vibrant which there are very few left where you can say it's not all that dangerous. It's not going to do anything. Putting a pickleball tournament in on a Saturday or a Sunday in an area that is overrun with homeless just puts the people who are visiting at a slightly higher risk of being assaulted or harassed by one of these folks. 
I don't anticipate that there's going to be any violence. But the second that these pickleballers leave, well, all of a sudden, you're going to see exactly what we saw before the other folks showed up. And if the first impression for some people when they go down because they think, they foolishly think that pickleball is cleaned, has cleaned up the area, if they show up and all they see are, yeah, some hipsters drinking IPAs and eating some gluten-free muffin, playing pickleball in sandals, if they see that surrounded by a bunch of homeless people, if they smell the area, if they realize what nothing ha- that nothing has changed, they're not going to come back. Seriously, they're not going to come back. Because we've done no work at all. No work. In order to actually clean up the area. Nothing. And so I pulled up this silly, seriously, it's just a silly press release. City of Seattle to host basketball and pickleball tournaments downtown, re-energizing public space at Taylor and Fifth Avenue. Mayor Harrell's downtown activation plan brings excitement and people downtown. Uh Uh-huh. And he's quoted in this, and it says, of course, he didn't actually say this. Some staff member wrote it and said, hey, can I put your name on this? Sure. These tournaments are going to be a ton of fun and an awesome reflection of the new downtown we are working to build together. Working to build? You've done nothing. You've done nothing downtown to rebuild. What are you talking about? The homeless are coming back. The homeless are coming back, and they're not doing any meaningful sweeps. They're just pushing people into other parts of the same area, just a block away. They could be pushing people into shelter. They're choosing not to do that because still, eh, no big deal. It's unbelievable. Let's find out what else is trending. What's trending? The Biden administration. Hunter Biden's attorney, Abby Lowell, or Lowell, was upset. He was upset, and it might be A, I don't know. It's spelled A-B-B-E, but it's a guy. He was upset that this news broke that we talked about, uh, what was it, a couple days ago, that special counsel David Weiss, Davis Weiss, um, David Weiss, excuse me, out of Delaware is seeking a grand jury indictment on the gun charges, felony gun charges, because Hunter Biden very clearly lied on his federal form in order to get a license for a handgun. He was high. He was addicted to drugs. He said otherwise. And he said at the time, David Weiss, that, hey, we've got a deadline to seek indictment on these charges. The deadline is Friday, September 29th, so we're going to do so before then. Now, this is all coming on the heels of the plea deal that just completely fell apart. And it it was uh, thanks to a judge that it fell apart. A judge who looked at this and said, this is very odd. We don't normally see things like this. And of course, the judge was referring to the fact that it was a a sweetheart deal that would appear to just cover everything. And she was like, no, 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 no. I'm sending this back into your court and you guys decide what you want to do and you can come back. So they decided what they wanted to do and they came back and they said, yeah, we're, we're out. They said that they were out over at the Hunter Biden camp. They had an expectation that they were going to get special privileges and actually follow through. It didn't go through. And now they're saying, oh, never mind. 
And so now as the uh, special counsel is going to seek this indictment, and it sounds like he'll get the indictment pretty easily, Lowell, this attorney, is claiming that it's all unconstitutional. And, of course, he's got Alex Wagner from MSNBC siding with him. And this statute that they cited to the court today has been found by a court of appeals to be unconstitutional. Where else other than a case in which they are cowering from the political pressure would somebody be charged with something yeah. that's yeah. unconstitutional? Yeah, yeah, totally. This is They're just cowering. Your client did nothing wrong. All he did wrong was having the last name Biden, making him a target for those MAGA Republicans and those white supremacists. The, the goal of this guy and, and, and this host to go along with that silly narrative that the only reason he's being charged is political pressure. No, actually, actually, you know what? I'm going to take that back. He is being charged because of political pressure, political pressure to not give him a sweetheart deal. To not treat him differently. To not give him special privileges. They were caught doing that. And that's when you do want political pressure to come into play. Political pressure leading to indictments? You don't like that? Okay, why don't you speak out on behalf of Donald Trump, who was very clearly the victim of being targeted politically by his adversaries, by your client's dad. It is really remarkable. And Alex Wagner, I don't want to get too much into the audio. I'll just read real quickly part of what she said. It's just, it, seriously, it is laughable. She says, I just wonder if the reality of how the Supreme Court has ruled on gun rights recently will also have will also factor into their calculations, right? I mean, the Supreme Court has expanded the rights of gun ownership, including for people who have been found to be abusing drugs potentially. So all of that could factor into the ultimate outcome of this. <laughs> no, the court did not say you can lie about your drug use on a form. They didn't say that. You're not even challenging the form. Right? The Hunter Biden team isn't challenging the, the appropriateness of questions on the form. They are not charging or, or alleging that he as a drug user should get a pass. That's not even what they said in that interview. I mean, my God, some of this stuff is ridiculous. Let's find out what else is trending. What's trending? Blue Lives Matter. Finally, we have some good news out of Bellevue where the officer who has been hospitalized for weeks after that incident, that crash, while working for the vice president's motorcade, he's actually quite possibly going to go home today, if not today, perhaps tomorrow. Officer Kevin Beretta, as you'll recall, was part of the motorcade escort for Kamala Harris when she was in town. He, at some point, and we haven't gotten an update at this point on the investigation, but he found himself ejected from his motorcycle on the Michigan Street on-ramp on I-5 in Seattle, and he fell at least 50 feet onto I-5. And he's been in the hospital since. This happened on August 15th. He's been at Harborview Medical Center. He spent three weeks in the ICU. He had to undergo five surgeries. I mean, this was really serious. And frankly, he's lucky to be alive. He's lucky to be alive. He might already be home by now.
And this is someone who we have to find out what happened. And in, I will say, in fairness to the vice president's office, her office, I don't know if it was her, but her office did call to check in on him. That was what one of the reports said. So at least this wasn't just some callous vice president moving on, or at least her office. I, if she didn't make the call, I'm a, you know, I think she probably should. This is someone who got injured and nearly died serving her escort. But beyond that, I want to know what happened. I think everyone wants to know what happened. If this was simply an accident, we should know what caused it. And I want to know if it was negligence on the part of the motorcade. Because this is a guy who's not hes not going back to work tomorrow. It might take him over a year before he returns to, to work. And I don't even know the extent of some of the injuries post-surgical intervention. You would hope that he heals up and is able to do his job again. But I've been speaking to a lot of folks, at least I was early on in this, and they said it's really bad. The injuries were really bad. And so it seems like at best he's going to be sidelined for a year. At worst, he'll never be able to be a cop again, at least a patrol officer, because of the extent of the injuries. Now, I hope that's not the case. This is a guy who spent uh, you know, a lot of years in law enforcement. He's someone who knows what it is he's doing. He, by all accounts, is a great cop. Only for this to happen, ugh. So we wish him a speedy recovery now that he's at home or will soon be at home. And we hope he's able to return to the force as quickly as humanly possible. 1-800-465-8770 if you want to send me a text. When we come back, we're going to take you through some of the crises in Seattle with one of the only council members, in fact, the only council member who is speaking up in a very significant way. Seattle City Councilwoman Sarah Nelson joins me when we return. The Jason Ranch Show. Here to react, Seattle Talk Radio host Jason Ranch. And the rise of soft on crime laws and policies have made it worse. Our man in the Pacific Northwest, Jason Rance, is on that. And you keep on bringing her these extraordinary stories from Seattle. It's amazing. Long form. There is a crime crisis in Seattle. There's little doubt about it. In fact, we already matched last year's homicide number, and we are on pace. If nothing changes, we will hit a historic high. We will exceed 1994's 69 homicides. And there's only one person at the city leadership level who seems to be talking about this. Joining me on the line is that person, Sarah Nelson, council member. Thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Jason. How would you characterize what's going on from a crime perspective in the city right now? I would say it's out of control. I mean, I think that that is what the public is is seeing when they are hearing these reports. And um, there are a lot of reasons why this is happening. However, I I feel that it's my responsibility to acknowledge that we've got a crisis on our hands. Your colleagues don't seem willing to say that, at least publicly. What what are the conversations like privately? Is there any meaningful conversation about not just acknowledging what's going on, but what can be done about it? Well, what you're seeing in public is what you get, frankly. Um, And so, therefore, I, you know, when I came on to city council and those shootings happened in downtown, I 
I felt like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? And so I put forward the, you know, the legislation to have some hiring bonuses to replenish our um, our staffing in SPD. So, you know, the public needs to know that there are efforts happening. And so that is why I'm talking to you. I'm trying to take every opportunity to to acknowledge that we have a responsibility to respond and to um, to basically show people that that uh, that um, that there is to basically show people that someone is listening. And I and I don't pretend to be the only one. You asked me what we're talking about, and um, you know I am telling you that I am very very concerned, and I and I hear my public's concern as well. Yeah, it, it seems odd to me, and in fairness, the media is talking about this, but it seems odd to me that we're not getting a lot of city leadership when it comes to what's going on, particularly in South Seattle, where you have now 15 or 16 elderly Asian people who are being targeted by a group of black teenagers. It feels like if they were white teens, this would be a huge story. It would be white supremacists, MAGA Republicans responsible, and yet no sense of urgency. In fact, we're not even supposed to call this a hate crime. This is urgent, and we have got to be um, – th- all victims deserve empathy. And so here's what I'm doing is I'm talking to Jason Rance saying that uh, that we have got to do something. And, and so you're right. It is – there are high-profile high stories in the media about South Seattle recently – but it's not just in South Seattle. It is all over the city. There was a mm-hmm. shooting yesterday in South Park. There was a shooting um, over the weekend in in the industrial zone in Ballard. Of course, there was another one in Belltown last week. And so, um, you know, this is the number one issue on people's minds. It's our number one responsibility to respond to. What role do you think SPD staffing is playing in this? We, we broke the story yesterday. Total separation so far this year through August is at 72. The city has only hired 46. And as we've been exclusively reporting, the mayor's retention and recruitment plan is barely off the ground despite being over a year old. I put this SPD staffing shortage at the center of the problem. You know, we definitely I mean, obviously, if we don't have enough officers uh, that are doing just regular beat patrols, getting Mm -hmm. to know community, building trust, all those things that used to happen with a fully staffed or at least an adequately staffed police department um, aren't happening right now because of our staffing shortage. And you asked about retention and recruiting. Mm -hmm. I am optimistic that picking up pace. It's it's you know, it's long in coming. But, you know, it takes a long time to train officers and get them on board, yada, yada, yada. So my point is that um, it, it should be all hands on deck, everything we can possibly do to uh, to ensure adequate staffing and respond to the crime that's happening. And part of that is preventative. And then part of it is also responsive. Explain that last part, the the responsive piece, because, again, to your point, everyone is talking about this and we're certainly feeling it. And I think there are more and more people realizing how bad it is. But to to the point of just the government response, what what else needs to be done? When I said that, I said, yeah, 
officers need to show up, but we also need to to get a handle on our drug crisis, mm-hmm. which is fueling a lot of the crime, both both petty crime. You know, it's not petty if it's happening to you, I'll add, but um, both, you know, the, the property crime that we see and um, the 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 gun violence, which is, I think, well, I don't just think it is fueled by the drug trade. And so that is what I mean by preventative. We have got to um, to focus on that as well as just responding to the latest shooting is what I'm saying. Council member Sarah Nelson joining me on the line. You mentioned the drug crisis, the drug issues. We have drug deals going yeah. on still somewhat in the open. And obviously we can see the results of drug trafficking. Where are we at as far as a drug policy that can be discussed? There will be a discussion of the mayor's bill in the public safety committee meeting on Tuesday. How are you feeling at this point about it? Well, you know, that I, um, I, I'm concerned that there will be a lot of amendments that we'll have to discuss and, um, any amendment that complicates the ability of the city to respond and conform to state law, as all the other cities and munici- municipalities around us have either automatically or have or took immediate steps to um, to uh, conform to the state law within their municipal codes. Anything that complicates that is 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 going to be a discussion, and that's going to happen on Tuesday. Do you do you get the sense that it's still Unless there are some significant changes, that sort of five to four dynamic within the council where you have you're just basically hoping one person from the other side will join you in reasonably tackling this issue. It it just seems like there's a group of folks who don't want any kind of police intervention, which just seems ridiculous to me. I think there is still a vestige of the defund mindset going on here, and it always takes five. Five is the magic number. So that's what, you know, I think that we're all trying to figure out um, how to how to arrive at that number from whatever side one is on. Are you optimistic or are you waiting to feel optimistic? I'm optimistic that we're going to vote to conform to state law making possession and public use of drugs a, mis- a gross misdemeanor. I think that will happen. It's just a question of um, of whatever else is tapped onto this bill. Yeah. And the reality is, let's say you get the bill exactly the way you want it, the the most you know fair bill imaginable. We still don't have enough cops to enforce a lot of this. What's your level of fear that you know you'll do all this work, you'll get something passed, and it seems the earliest that this could actually happen is maybe October. But let's say you get it passed, do you think that there's enough of an ability from the department to even? adequately address the issue? You know, um, it's better than nothing. Yeah. Right. And, it, and let's not re- let's not forget that it also has to do with um, uh, public perception. Mm-hmm. We need to show that Seattle is taking this seriously. We've got an, a downtown office vacancy rate. I don't know, around 22, 24 percent. That hurts our economy. We have people that don't want to um, to ride public transit to work because because they don't want to be sitting next to someone who's who's smoking right next to them. That is so so I believe getting this law on the books finally, which we could have done on June sixth if we had just, you know, passed the bill that uh, Councilmember Peterson and Davison and I put forward, 
that will help in itself. So that that is completely um, that's in addition to officers responding to uh, to activity in the in the public realm. Last question, because you just brought it up. I need to get your response. What what do you make of this UW study that tells us 100 percent of the transit vehicles they tested had meth? And about 50 percent, I think it was 48 percent, had traces of fentanyl residue, while them telling us, all is well, don't worry, you're safe. What's your response to that? I'm dumbfounded. I mean, I'll have to give them the science, but any is too much, (laughs) you know, on on our trains and buses. It is beyond bizarre that anyone thinks they're pulling one over on us. I I don't understand why they think they can get away with this, uh, unless they just look at the history, I guess, and they always get away with what they're doing. Uh, Thankfully, we have someone like you who can point out some of this stuff and fight really hard to ensure that we don't have to deal with it. But uh, Sarah Nelson needs some uh, more allies on the council, folks, as we have an election coming up. Uh, Sarah Nelson, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. Bye-bye. Absolutely. Have a good one. You are listening to The Jason Ranch Show. The Jason Rant Show. Let's bring in our man in the Pacific Northwest, KTTH Seattle Talk Radio host Jason Rantz. Great to have you with us to tell people a little bit more about this. Jason Rantz is in focus now. Jason Rantz, thank you for your reporting on that. The Quick Hit. I am going to do something I don't do very often. I'm going to stand up for a reporter. A reporter who almost sounded like he was asking a woke question or bringing up an issue that immediately makes us think about political correctness in film. I'm actually going to defend this guy because I don't think the question he asked and the reason he asked it was perceived in the reality in which it was discussed. There is an actor named Mads Mikkelsen. He is an outstanding actor. And you probably don't know him by name, but you might know him by his face. He has a very distinct look. I'm pretty sure he was uh, a recent bad I can't remember which one, but he was a recent bad guy in uh, the 007 films. But he's doing a new movie, and they're p- promoting the movie right now at the Toronto Film Festival. It's called The Promised Land. And it is a movie based in 18th century Denmark. Mickelson is Danish. So, too, is the director. And I think his name is Nicolaj Arcel. And so they were doing the press after the movie did its premiere over at TIFF. And he was asked a question. Both of them were on the stage. They were both asked a question about the film's casting. And the context of the question, to me, I thought was actually pretty clear. But to, at least to Mads, Mickelson, the actor, because he's just he's got a look on his face, he's shaking his head, he gets sarcastic, he interrupts, he gets a little snarky. He immediately took it as an annoying woke question. And in fairness, because these annoyingly dumb woke questions are asked a lot, you might automa- I might even automatically assume that the reporter is trying to make a point. But that's not the case. So let's listen in. Hello, uh, I'm from Denmark, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Hello. So you're a little bit into it. Uh, this is a cast and a Danish production, which is entirely Nordic. It, uh, 
therefore has some lack of diversity, you would say, as also new rules are implied. Now, uh, he, he starts to, to give the context, but just to that point where he says, and that implies a lack of diversity. Now, for some people, especially for those of us who are sick and tired of having these conversations, these conversations that are obsessed with race and other identity, you might immediately turn off paying attention and you might immediately start thinking, oh my God, here we go again. And you start formulating how you're going to respond to what you assume is going to be an annoying question. Again, I totally understand that. But see, as also new rules are implied what? in Hollywood. What are you on to? <laughs> yeah, sorry, so, that's, but... so that's Matt. That's the actor. What are you on to? <laughs> that was the actor. On to. <laughs> yeah, sorry, but from the get go. Uh, from the get go, there is set some rules of diversity in the, across the Atlantic uh, for competing in the best picture, the equivalent to this uh, competition. As I see, you don't live up to these standards with this broadcast, um, and there is. Just uh, curious. It's not because of artistic reasons. Now, I'll let him finish because I think this part is important just as a reminder. We've talked about this on the show before. You have to, in order to be considered for a Best Picture nomination, you have to have some kind of diversity. And they give a very specific sort of – it almost kind of is just like a checklist – where you have to have X amount percentage of your staff being a representation of different communities. You have to have either a storyline, X amount of the movie be focused on that. On the back end, the people who are producing the films or, or making the films, from the editing to the costume design, all that. You have to have X percentage of people of color, quote-unquote. It, it is incredibly offensive, and it is tokenizing. And they're doing it while hoping that they get applauded for it. This is white knighting. This is white knighting at its worst. And clearly, I think the context here, as we'll hear it, is that you're not going to be considered a best picture contender because of these new rules. Is it fair? And there is, just uh, curious, it's not because of artistic reasons, it's because of lack of diversity that this can't compete in that competition. Is, are you worried about that? Are you? Uh, I'm, I'm, on, I'm, I'm serious uh, and honest because I'm, I'm, you're, I'm, you're, I'm, you're putting I'm, us on the spot, so, so yeah, you sure, answer the uh, question. No, because I have, in comparison, Parasite, which is a great what, movie. What do you think? Well, I would think that Parasite, which is a great movie coming from South Korea, mm. had the same level of diversity. But coming from South Korea, this was actually still eligible for the competition. You, as a Danish movie with an all-Nordic cast, it's not. And that's what I think is a little bit conundrum. I, I don't understand the question. Okay. Well, first of all, the f- film <coughs> takes place in Denmark in the 1750s. Yeah. We, ha- we do have a, um, a, a big plot line, you know, about a, a girl of color who is being subjected to racism. Okay. And, uh, you know, uh, and which was very rare. Any people of color in Denmark in the yes. Almost nobody. Uh, she was probably at the time the only one in the entire country of Denmark. So, so it was. Uh, I, I would say that just it, it, it hasn't been. It, it wasn't a thought in our mind that, that uh, I think it would be a little weird. Uh, you know, if, if it's just a historical it, exactly. how it was in that's the 1750s. A, that's also what I was portraying for. Yeah, yeah. cool. So, I think that this is really important. I think his question 
was about how unfair it is. That's all I think he was saying. That this is a great movie and you're not going to be judged on the content. You're not going to be judged on the storyline, the acting, the directing, the editing, the costume design, etc. But instead, you will be dismissed completely because you have too many white people because it's all white. And, And that question actually goes to the heart of the problems, specifically with these new rules. It goes to the heart of the problem with the new rules. If you have a historical drama that takes place in the 18th century in Denmark, if you want it to be true to form, true to life, you're not going to have a diverse cast. The same way, if you're doing a movie that's based in Korea and it's about Koreans, you're not going to have a diverse cast. You're going to have a bunch of Koreans. You're not going to have a bunch of black people or Latinos or Native Americans or white people. You're going to have Koreans. That makes total sense to me. But because in that case, and he brought up the movie, specifically that one for Best Picture, Parasite, that one uh, three years ago, and that was Korean and was or South Korean. It was all uh, a Korean staff, all actors, I'm assuming behind the scenes because I think they actually filmed it in Korea. That one I'm, I might be off on. But there was no diversity whatsoever as far as the casting goes. But they're not white, so they counted as being uh, in line with these new rules. And at the time, I don't think the rules were even in place. I think the rules go into place in this coming year. But his point is the same. So you've got, in this case, because it's Danish, because it's happening in Denmark, they're all white. And it's supposed to be true to life. It's 18th century Denmark. You're going to get nothing but pretty much white people, 99.9% white. They're not going to be judged on the content of the film. So how is that fair to the filmmakers, to the actors, to the writers, to everyone who's involved in that? Because obviously when you get an award, when you get a nomination, not only is that good for your resume, but it's also, of course, good for the box office. You help make more money. And the Oscars have basically said to to this team and any movie like it, yeah, you're either going to have to make it up, you're going to have to pull a Hamilton and just have casting on the basis of skin color so you can check some boxes, or you can just make a great movie, but we're not going to give you any uh, any kind of award for it. It's a pretty shameful place for art to be. And again, as much as I understand why the actor Mads Mikkelsen got a little annoyed in this case, and he had every right to to assume that it was going to go into the wokeness because it almost always does. The question was perfectly appropriate. It was important to ask. And I want to hear more actors and directors and writers and producers explain what they're supposed to do if they're making a great movie. And it turns out to be the best picture to, to audiences. But because of the time in which it took place, and they wanted it to be historically accurate. If it's not diverse enough, is it fair to be dismissed? I think that that is a valid question. 1-800-465-8770 for your texts. You're listening to The Jason Rant Show.